arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Dr. Jung put forward a new concept that he called synchronicity. This term means a meaningful coincidence of outer and inner events that are not themselves causally connected. The emphasis lies on the word meaningful. As soon as we notice that certain types of event like to cluster together at certain times, we begin to understand the attitude of the Chinese. Good evening, this is Robert P. Fitton. My objective with these podcasts is to get my books out to many people in many places. However, I think it's good to have a little bit of context and where I'm coming from and what's been talked about, especially with this term of synchronicity. We're talking about the unus mundus, Latin for one world, the concept of an underlying reality from which everything emerges and to which everything returns. But also in the 16th century, Gerhard Dorn had written about this, Here's the paragraph of what Jung actually said and does relate to this book. If this is nothing less than a restoration of the original state of the cosmos and the divine unconsciousness of the world, we can understand the extraordinary fascination emanating from this mystery. It is the Western equivalent of the fundamental principle of the classic Chinese philosophy, namely the union of Yang and Yin in Tao and at the same time a premonition of what is the tertium quid, which is the basis of all psychological experience on the one hand, and Ryan's experiments on the other. I have called it synchronicity. If Mandela symbolism is the psychological equivalent of unus mundus, then synchronicity is the parapsychology equivalent. After this little lesson here, let's get into episode three and enjoy the book, and I'll get off the air here. This is Robert P. Fitton. Let's get back to A Butterfly in the Deadly Storm. Chapter six. The snow gently hit the van's windshield as Catherine braked at the green and white road sign along the fast-paced superhighway. Several cars in the outside lane whipped by her as she crossed the Plymouth town line. Unlike her dreams, the highway lanes were bordered by condos that sliced through the wooded hills and a sign for a mall indicated more mass development. The second exit on Route 44 had an arrow for Plymouth. A towering red and white antenna reached toward the clouds and seemed to rise from the cemetery to her left. Decades ago, Conrad Ritter had broadcast from inside a gray Quonset hut atop the hill behind the cemetery. She adjusted the digital frequencies on the rented van's radio and stopped at 106.9 FM. She grinned as Ritter's original station spewed out Buddy Holly singing That'll Be the Day from the 50s. As she continued down the highway, a billboard for the station advertising the oldies format with a huge vinyl 45 RPM record and Elvis Presley in a gold coat appeared at the edge of the woods. Catherine tightened her brow as she checked an industrial park at the bottom of the hill. An abandoned, batted drive-in movie screen behind new office buildings caught her attention. Tree branches protruded through the gaping holes and metal supports in the screen. Mixed with unmitigated fear, her dreams had catapulted into reality. Maybe she should have agreed to have Roz accompany her to Plymouth. She veered toward the right lane and down the ramp under a new bridge. 
a massive shopping center plaza, occupied the wooded hill in her dreams, and a plethora of fast food restaurants, donut shops, and a car dealership framed the once rural highway. The water tower hill housed an additional plaza. To her right, under the hovering WXBN antenna, the cemetery gravestones matched her dream sequence. She signaled at the traffic light and headed left into town. The descending hills and older clapboard houses along the road were also familiar. Catherine believed that Shane and Billy had driven around this little roundabout leading toward Plymouth Rock and maybe the Mayflower. Before she registered at her hotel, an overwhelming compulsion caused her to drive through that very intersection and see what she had only dreamed. She waited at the Court Street traffic light, her hands moist on the wheel as the snow flurries melted against the windshield. Her thoughts centered on the night the young Conrad Ritter chased Shane and Billy along the bay. A few car horns shook her concentration. Catherine checked the rearview mirror and sped forward. She drove along a row of bare trees. The sky brightened ahead and a deep blue winter ocean spread out from the docks along the seaside restaurants. The roundabout near a white clapboard shanty appeared ahead. The stone seawall, no more than three or four feet high, separated a long sidewalk and the chilly bay waters. With teary eyes, she gripped the wheel. She skirted the traffic circle and steered the rental van along the seawall. The directional clicked as she merged into a parking space. Through the front windshield, the weathered wall cement had darkened over the years. She buttoned her coat and stepped onto the slippery asphalt. It was as if she had known this area all her life. Her fingers traced the cold, angled stone edges. She had walked this wall before. As she leaned forward, the wind gently furled her curly hair and crossed her arms over her wool coat. She bit her lower lip as she wandered down the sidewalk, alternating glances between the Mayflower's empty dock and adjacent brown clapboard house and the distant gray pillars of the Plymouth Rock Portico. With each stride through the flurries, she moved closer to the stone temple housing Plymouth Rock below. She stopped twice to where she estimated the location of Conrad Ritter's blue Volkswagen. A man and a woman bundled up in bright parkas gazed down at the historic rock and then moved on. Her heartbeat accelerated. Shane, chased by a gun-toting Ritter, had run down this very road with Billy. Catherine's throat tightened when she placed her hands on the portico granite and peered over the metal railing. She exhaled. Sand and the bubbly tide sloshed over the rock's rounded edges. The chiseled date indicated when the pilgrims first stepped on the rock. 1620. She had never seen or traveled to this place, yet Shane and Billy hid from Conrad Ritter less than 15 feet away. Even if she found physical evidence linking Ritter and Dimitri Meritokas to the deaths of three people 40 years ago, such evidence might be useless in court. Having identified so strongly with Shane, she had to find the truth. She clutched the iron railing and peered between the portico pillars along the harbor. A man in a brown suede coat with wavy chestnut hair gripped the railing on the right side of the portico. His brown eyes caught her for a second as she swung her eyes down to the omnipresent rock. She took in the cold, salty air. The man had disappeared when she looked up. She released her grip on the railing. Her portico guy, in a blue checkered shirt and jeans, now wore a beige Stetson. He smoked a tipperillo with his boot propped up on a stone wall. Catherine retreated to her rental, parked along the sea. 
getting a good meal after she checked into the hotel with refresher thinking. She glanced over her shoulder at the portico as she, she continued past the Mayflower's berth. Roz would want to hear all about what she had seen in Plymouth. Maybe she would have suggestions. She pictured the confident Ritter on his TV show and contrasted him to the killer who had fired at Shane and Billy. She returned to the van, started the car, and immediately turned up the heat. As she backed away from the seawall, an insatiable urge prompted her to the red and white radio antenna up the hill. Again, she drove by recognizable clapboard houses, and then the van climbed into an open area with monuments to the pilgrims. She circled around the back of the station. A two-story modern brick office with thermal windows and a flat roof had replaced the Quonset hut. She saw a yellow station van with WXBN in bold letters next to the compact cars in the adjacent lot. A bulky, chrome-laden yellow car sat on an elevated platform. The plaque below proclaimed the car a classic 1950 Studebaker with a black convertible top donated by the former station owner, Conrad Ritter. She stopped the rental and stared at the station where Conrad Ritter had begun his ascent to national notoriety. With that rise to prominence lay a trail of murdered people who were just trying to find answers. Somehow, she would find the truth. Chapter 7 Catherine peeked through the restaurant's window panes at the gray smeared cloud layers creeping over the harbor. The salt air lingered in the dining room, stirred by a combination of restaurant aromas. She squeezed her cell phone as the line rang. Her frustration mounted each time the call went into Roz's voicemail. Before she could end the call, her friend's powerful voice overrode the voicemail message. Roz here. Roz, it's me. Ah, the little pilgrim herself. I just got in. Listen, I talked to Wacky Patty. She'll give me time off. I'm coming back there to help you out. Roz, you don't have to come back here. Look, kid, you do the same for me. Catherine smiled and turned toward the crowded restaurant. She brushed her scraggly hair with her fingers. You won't believe what I've seen here. Should I call Sacalatita and offer your apologies? As a matter of fact, you can. I drove down from Boston and what I saw was unbelievable. Route 44 was slightly different at the bridge, lined with new businesses and buildings. The bridge itself was new, but it was the dream area, Roz. I saw the cemetery and the antenna across the highway. Well, I took the liberty to call Sacalatita, and I briefed him about what you did. Well, what did he say? He thinks that Shane is real, and so do I, and he says that I should fly back there with you. I think Shane is real, too. I drove the rental down to the lights and across from the street. I saw the traffic circle. It's the same roundabout where Shane and Billy drove the Nash. It must have been decades ago. The seawall was exactly the same. The Mayflower was away for the winter. I walked along a clapboard house, just like the dream, to the portico where they had Plymouth Rock. It was the same pillars and surf all over the rock, even the way the 1620 was chiseled into the stone. I keep calling out to Shane, but I get no answers. Well, that's not how it works. Sacalatita told me that a spirit can only do so much. It's all coming through another realm. It may seem like the spirit isn't making much of an effort. Catherine nodded as the cowboy guy she had seen at Plymouth Rock stepped up to the hostess. He ordered a table in the smoking section. She stared at his spit-shined brown boots and square silver belt buckle. With his red checkered shirt and jeans, he looked out of place in New England. 
I had another dream on the plane. Bud Kerrigan was alive and well in his house. There was a real estate deal called Capitol Hill, west of town. I think that's where Ritter got his money. Bud called Ritter Sputnik. What the hell is that? I think it was the first satellite sent up by the Russians. It makes sense. That all happened 40 years ago. You need to verify that land deal. Maybe do some digging. You need Roz helping you, kid. Let me do some more snooping myself. Well, the offer is still open. Thank you. I just worry. What's on your agenda now, Catherine Marie? First thing I want to do is find out for sure that Bud Kerrigan really existed and died in that accident. The man in the western garb spoke briefly with the hostess and smiled a quick straight smile and then sat at a table overlooking the harbor. He removed a pack of tipperillos from his red checkered jersey pocket and struck a match. Check the cemetery. Once you find that, how do you prove 40 years later that Ritter and this guy Meritokas tampered with Bud's car? I don't know. Conrad Ritter is a powerful man. Catherine pushed her teeth together. Evidence, albeit circumstantial, had begun to build against Ritter. She pictured the suave, gray-haired talk show host speaking with the president the other night on TV. Justice isn't hindered by time. Good quote, kid, but you'll have to be careful. The strangest Tipperillo produced a blue smoke trail from the black ceramic ashtray as he studied the laminated menu. Hypnosis? Yeah, I guess that's part of it. He says the spirit is activated and you'll have mobility to bring yourself to her. Scary stuff, Roz. Well, you risk being pulled in, he said. But he refused to even talk about it. He said it's not without risk. Well, hopefully I'll find what I'm looking for back here. Then get a good lawyer. My buddy Stu at the pastry shop has a cousin who once defended the Columbus Clobberer. I think I'll pass on that one, Roz. Catherine nervously rubbed her teeth over her lip. Roz, I'll check in after I track down the newspaper accounts. I just don't know if I'm going to find reports about that accident. I'll come home if I find nothing, and then the whole thing will be bogus. I guess that will be the proof in the pudding. Remember, I'm one phone call to the airlines away. Thanks. Pleasant dreams. Oh, God, said Catherine, smiling. Good night, Roz. Still smiling, she hung up the phone. The guy at the window slowly swung his eyes away from her and back to the menu. She moved toward the hostess, glancing at the westerner as a short-skirted waitress approached his table with a pencil and pad in hand. He pointed at the menu, said something, and ordered his dinner. Miss, said the hostess, sliding a menu from the holder. Thank you. The hostess brought her along the barn board to a darkened booth with a floating candle. She sat on a cool vinyl bench seat and slowly opened the plastic-coated menu, but she kept thinking about tomorrow morning. According to the hotel clerk, the town library was located one exit down Route 3. The woman she talked to on the phone said past issues of the local newspaper were stored on old microfilm on the first-floor records room. Across the restaurant, her mystery man set down his menu, propped up his elbows on the table, and rested his chin on his folded hands to peruse the bay. Out in the bay, an elongated spit outlined the harbor. Occasionally, he puffed on the tipperillo, but he always returned to the harbor. Are you ready to order? asked the older waitress. Oh, I'm sorry, she said, lifting the menu. I can give you a few minutes. No, thank you. Catherine panned the restaurant and then focused on the entrees. 
Too much had befallen her that afternoon. Absorbing the truth about her vivid dreams required a radical adjustment. Maybe later, after nibbling on a small meal, she would return to her room and sort through the implications of finding the truth. Shane stepped out of the Nash. Uncle Bud leaned on the side porch balustrade and stared into his backyard. His tie hung loosely over his short-sleeved shirt. He kept running his hand through his disheveled hair and talked to himself. Uncle Bud? He swung his red, moist eyes toward her. His flushed face looked pummeled. Uncle Bud, what's wrong? Oh, God, Shane, you don't want to know. What happened? He closed his eyes momentarily and his lower lip quivered when he spoke. My sweetheart, I have allowed my trust in humanity to be my downfall. You can't say anything until I prove it. Nobody knows, not even Aunt May. I don't understand. Dimitri Meritokas. Dimitri, what about him? asked Shane. Uncle Bud put his arm around her and they faced the lot behind his shire office. Capitol Hill. What about it? He shook his head and Shane thought back to the one time she had heard him mention the project. I didn't pay much attention to it. Oh, you wouldn't. Again, Uncle Bud closed his eyes and tightened his hands. Oh, God, I put everything I had into that project. I trusted Dimitri with $80,000. But my dear Shane, there is no Capitol Hill. It's all on paper, a pipe dream. She held his arm. Then just go to the police or to the courts. No, I can't. I could be in trouble with the courts in the state. I could lose my license. He turned toward his new green and white Plymouth 88. I was so proud of that car, and the company was showing real profit. I had to go for the big hit, and now I've been taken. I'm sorry. Please don't tell anybody, especially May. I understand, but what can I do? How can I help you? Uncle Bud creased his brow. I trusted Dimitri. I have to hire someone to find out who he really was. He lived in North Plymouth, near St. Sebastian's, but he had another place in Brockton, I think. I'll talk to Danny Jansen about it. First, I'll see what's in that North Plymouth house. Who is he? I don't know. I, I didn't think the man was a scoundrel. How do I explain my poor judgment? $80,000 is insurmountable. All my dreams. I need a drink. He picked up his hat from the porch table. Shane, I'm going to the wayside and then I'll be back. Well, getting drunk won't change anything, Uncle Bud. Poppycock, I'm going to have the usual two glasses of wine, admire the lights on the bay, and then head home and watch Gunsmoke. I'll find him. I have to. Shane circled her arms around him. You'll get through this, Uncle Bud. You'll find Dimitri. You will. It could have happened to any of us. You're very kind, Shane. You tell Billy to keep up his studies at Wentworth. Going to school full-time must put a strain on you both. Shane raised her brows. Yeah, but we still have time together. Two years and he'll be a civil engineer. Uncle Bud kissed her forehead and managed to smile. He walked across the porch and held the banister as he descended the stairs to the driveway. She never realized how old he had become as he waddled to his new 88. He opened the door and sat behind the wheel for several seconds. Since she was in high school, Shane had known Dimitri Maritokas was a senior real estate partner. Bud started the car, shifted, and backed around the lot. Shane walked to the far end of the office porch. Bud's brake lights brightened and his right blinker flashed before he pulled onto Main Street. She needed to speak with Billy. He would know how to find Dimitri Maritokas. Uncle Bud, getting taken for such a large amount of money, 
belied his astute business sense as well as his conservative nature about taking chances. As she thought, a loud motorcycle engine started behind the bushes down the street, and a guy with greasy dark hair, sideboards, and biceps bulging from his t-shirt raced by her uncle's office. She blocked her ears and headed inside. She stared into Dimitri's side office adjacent to Uncle Bud's corner office, picked up the phone and dialed Billy's number in Kingston. The line rang and she tapped her fingers on the blotter. She hung up the phone and wandered into Dimitri's office. The wall pictures showed Uncle Bud and Dimitri Meritokas, a little man in a polo jersey and slicked back dark hair, at the golf course. Meritokas was a short, fast-talking broker who was never around the office. A bunch of Dimitri's cards, stacks of paperwork, and a map of New Jersey and calendars were strewn across the desktop glass. She pulled out one of his cards. Another picture of Dimitri with a group of people on a boat in the Caribbean was wedged between the glass and the desk, but no family photos. The framed color photo on the desk showed him behind the mic at WXBN with Conrad Ritter interviewing him on a Sunday morning broadcast. The wall photo of Dimitri with everyone at the real estate office resided on Uncle Bud's desk, and she was reminded at how much Uncle Bud had trusted Dimitri Maritokas. Shane turned and started into Uncle Bud's office, but tripped on one of the electric typewriter cords. She fell forward and hit the floor hard. Catherine kicked off the quilt and rolled off the mattress. The slightest sheer curtains flooded from the hotel heater. She put on her robe and stepped in front of the fourth floor balcony slider. Dimitri Maritokas's connection to Conrad Ritter, hidden in the labyrinth of time, added to her confusion. Red and green buoy lights pulsed colored ripples over the breakers toward the hills, silhouetted against the starry sky. To her right, WXBN's massive antenna tower's crimson lights blinked ever so slowly, like warning beacons through time. She owed it to Bud Kerrigan and Billy and Shane to find the truth. Chapter 8 waitress at the register nodded as Catherine charged the breakfast to her tab and walked through the hotel's revolving brass door. In the bright winter sun, she slipped on her prescription sunglasses, glanced at the maroon rental van, but decided to walk along the seawall. Last night's dream convinced her she would have to trace Dimitri Maritokas's identity, but she did not know how she would break through 40 years of history. She inhaled the clear morning air, trotted across the street, and immediately touched her fingers to the seawall's rough rock edges. The cottages outlining the beach spit were crisp in the shadowy sunlight as she traced the bay. She compulsively looked back to the hilltop antenna overlooking the highway. Ritter, linked to Dimitri Meritokas, purchased WXBN and launched his national radio career. Maybe they both had conspired to defraud Bud Kerrigan. With great trepidation, she followed the seawall. Anxiety spiraled like a tornado within her. After her walk, she would take the van to the library on Long Pond Road and gather information about Bud Kerrigan's accident. Once she had access to the microfilm machine, she could study the back issues of the local 1958 papers. Maybe somewhere in the Plymouth Library or maybe at the local school, Pictures of Shane and Billy were trapped in old high school yearbooks, and that scared her. The wispy clouds laced the morning sky. 
standing at the edge of a long wood pier with his boot wedged against a post and a tipperillo between his fingers, the cowboy guy held a clipboard with a yellow Lego pad as he stared at the rock jetties jutting into the bay. Catherine slowed and wanted to approach him. He positioned the clipboard in his hands, securing his boot against the mooring pole and then balanced the clipboard on his knee. He scribbled something onto the pad. Was he a writer or a reporter doing a story on Plymouth? She continued down the sidewalk toward the granite portico and looked for him over her shoulder several times until the clapboard cottages blocked her view. Only a few people leaned over the monument's black inner black rail. Seeing the portico's thick, smooth pillars invoked horrific memories of Rita chasing Shane and Billy. She neared the outside granite retaining wall, edging her way to the iron railing, and stared into the brine washing over the boulder. The pilgrims stepping on this rock meant nothing compared to Shane and Billy shot to death down there. A slight breeze ruffled her hair and chilled her skin. For the longest time she fixated on the surf and rock. Conrad Ritter stood where she had stood and pointed his gun down into the salt water flux. Her head warm below her knitted stocking cap. She sensed the passage of time as she fixated on the bay's blue waters iced at the edges through the portico pillars. Her thoughts were not specific as she backed away and wandered under the shade of the tall pines. The stranger had left the dock. Although she did not know this man, his presence in the area had become routine. Men with huge yellow gloves worked on fishing boats outside the seawall. Again she felt the grainy rocks along the wall. The wall's cemented rock points flipped against her glove fingers like spokes on a roulette wheel as she retreated back to the hotel. From this angle on Front Street, she noticed a huge truck rig with chrome side pipes parked at the hotel near the shrubs in the stockade fence and unlocked her rental van, but as she slid across the vinyl seat and placed her sweaty hands on the wheel, she worried whether she would find the truth. Shane and Billy, Bud Kerrigan, or Dimitri Meritokas meant nothing until she checked the library. She remained burrowed in front of the computer monitor and detailed each local newspaper's page beginning with the spring of 1957. The pages moved with each mouse click, blurring after a while. She rubbed her eyes and crossed her arms as she gazed at the library desks below. A few people were perched behind another row of white computer monitors in the room to her right, while students turned book pages in alcoves along the main room. Again she faced the screen, an ad running on page 16 of an April 1957 edition caught her attention a few minutes later. God Almighty! Pleasant Valley Real Estate, New Homes, Rentals Land, 16 Shire Lane, Bud Kerrigan, Dimitri Meritokas, Plymouth, 8740, Plymouth, 8741. She raised her hands to her mouth and then removed her glasses. For a moment she doubted her perceptions, massaged her eyes again and thought about the kindly Bud Kerrigan in her dreams. Her heart cranked when she put on her glasses and focused on the ad. Bud and the dreams were real. She began a search for Bud Kerrigan in Pleasant Valley Real Estate. Random articles referred to Pleasant Valley Real Estate in a vague way until she stumbled upon the sale of the company in 1964 by its owner, Dimitri Meritokas. The company went out of business in 1973. She typed in Dimitri Meritokas's name. 
Pages of articles related to Conrad Ritter's show fill the screen, but nothing related to Bud Kerrigan or Plymouth. Yet, Bud Kerrigan existed. While her dreaming about Plymouth might have a basis in reality, her awareness of two people named Bud Kerrigan and Dimitri Meritokas made no sense. Catherine pushed the wood chair over the carpet and moved toward the windows. She hesitated to punch in Roz's number into her cell phone as her mystery man, now wearing a solid yellow shirt, carried several books up the mezzanine stairs. His boot heels disappeared at the top landing as she slowly placed her phone in her pocket. She did not understand why this man provoked such interest, not just an attraction, but something deeper. She scurried up the crimson stair runner and stuck her head around the mezzanine corner. At the far end, he pulled out a wood chair along the upper windows and opened one of the books. She stared as she stared as he thumbed through the pages. Then she started down the stairs to call Roz, but then stopped. She shook her head and returned to the mezzanine. As she slipped along the rail, open to the first floor, he slowly turned in the chair. His brown eyes locked onto her as she stopped a few feet away. She gave him a goofy smile. I'm sorry, I don't know what I'm doing up here. I keep seeing you around town. He had a ready smile and extended his hand. John Tucker, I'm here on vacation from Phoenix, Arizona. Catherine Jenner, I live in Ohio. She, he blocked the chair as if he were guarding something on his desk. Long way from Ohio, Miss Jenner. No longer from Phoenix, she replied. Tucker had a wedding ring. How long you here for? Oh, probably until I relax, she chuckled. I know the feeling. I've driven a truck for 15 years. You probably saw my rig by the hotel. As a matter of fact, I did. Let's just say I had the urge to come east. Me too. I'm senior vice president with a marketing firm in Ellaby, Ohio. Sounds important. I don't know about that. She tried looking over his shoulder at the books spread open on the desk. Well, I guess I'll see you around. He held the back of the chair as he leaned against it. Yeah, I'll be taking in the sights just like any other tourist, just like uh, Plymouth Rock. I wonder if it's a real rock, said Catherine. I'd like to call it the traditional rock. Who the hell knows? Main point is they landed somewhere near here. And the rock was here. Yeah, yeah, now you've got it. He studied her hair and face, but, but she did not mind. What about the boat? The Mayflower? I keep asking myself, where is it? It sails south for the winter, said Tucker. I thought that was the original boat. You did? Tucker spoke in a lower voice as if it were a secret. I guess it's the Mayflower, too. Catherine grinned. His ruddy face and chiseled nose made him appear older, but she figured he still had at least 10 to 12 years on her. Do you really think, did you really think that was the original ship? Hell, you're talking to a good old boy from Scottsdale. I saw the ocean when I was in the service. I was in the Marines. I wasn't a Navy man. Me either. Took Tucker a few seconds to appreciate her sense of humor. I, I get it. I get it. What did you do in the Marines? I was in special ops. He stopped and tilted his head before he spoke again. I don't mean this to sound like a pickup line, Catherine, but I feel like I know you. Catherine nodded her head. That's why I came over to you. I could swear we've met, but I've never seen you before, and I've never been to Arizona. Well, I drove my rig to Akron once, but I can't tell you where Ellerflee is. Ellerby, she said, laughing. Well, maybe we'll see each other at the hotel, she said, hoping he would ask her to dinner. 
Tucker squinted and the lines around his tanned face tightened. His dark eyes had a deep sincerity. Yeah, I'm sure I'll see you around. Okay. Catherine retreated along the mezzanine railing and started down to the main floor, but again stopped on the landing. She gazed up the stairs, her stomach wrenched as she slowly climbed again. Tucker stood at the window and turned more pages. He started down the lengthy cranberry-hued rug once again. He raised his hands to his his temples. His glassy eyes were fixed on the black and white pages of a yearbook. The yearbook's distinctive ink smell stayed in the air as she peered over his shoulder. Amidst the student photos, she observed a young woman with short dark hair and brows. The girl's expressive eyes possessed a mysterious allure. Catherine spoke her name out loud. Shane Kerrigan, holy shit! Tucker looked up at Catherine. You know, don't you? I think I do. Tucker's bewildered expression matched her own inner turmoil. She reached around Tucker and turned the pages rapidly. She did not know Billy's last name. Tucker's brow furrowed. His name was William Ellis. Catherine stared at Tucker and then flipped the page to a picture of a thin kid with a crop of dark hair parted on the right and freckles across his face. Billy, I dreamed his dreams, said Tucker boldly. Catherine raised her left brow. Shane brought me back here. Conrad Ritter killed both of them, said Tucker as he looked into her eyes and held her arms. It's all real, Catherine. Catherine's parched mouth hung open. She swallowed several times and slowly grasped his calloused hands. Come with me, Tucker. Tucker nodded and folded up the yearbooks. She led him along the mezzanine and down the stairs. The computer screen still glowed across the study room table. Tucker leaned closer to to Bud's Pleasant Valley ad in the newspaper. Son of a gun, Bud Carrigan. Shane's uncle, he died in an accident on Route 3A, the Plymouth Bypass. Tucker briefly closed his eyes before studying the ad on the monitor. I sure as hell wondered if someone else had dreamed what I dreamed. Bud's real estate office. What does it all mean? Dimitri Maritokas owned the agency after Bud's death and then sold it in the 1970s. Maritokas. Catherine sat in the chair and he put his hand on her shoulder. His touch reassured her that someone else in the world understood what she was going through. Can't believe I found you, Tucker. I was trying to locate a report of Bud's accident. The accident happened in early September in my dream. Shane called Billy. She tightened her brow. You understand, don't you? I, I, I thought I was nuts. Her eyes filled. We need to talk about this whole thing. I had some shrink back home telling me I was a loon. He had some dumbass term for it. Catherine now realized what a conventional therapist could not have told her. Sacolatita's darkened office flashed into her head as she scrolled to September 1958. I ended up with this guy who said there was a soul inside me trying to resolve something in her life. I didn't want to believe it. And I didn't believe it until I saw Bud Kerrigan's ad. And now with Shane and Billy in that yearbook, Shane was a real person. I dreamed about her being killed at the rock, said Catherine. Tucker's eyes brightened, and Conrad Ritter pulled up in a blue Volkswagen. That's exactly right, she glanced at the newspaper pages. Tucker, what are we going to do with this information? He shook his head. I thought about that. If we're going to take the offensive, we sure as hell better have all the facts. 
How do we take on Conrad Ritter with our dreams as the only witness? I'm convinced that he killed Shane and Billy and had something to do with Bud Kerrigan's accident. One of my dreams started with me falling through the dark water. The shrink said it was my unconscious thoughts trying to get through. Well, that's bullshit. That's a great theory. Until the other night, I dreamed some guy with dark hair brought Billy and Shane's body out of the bay in a small speedboat. Meritokas. In the dream, I saw his picture in Bud Kerrigan's office. I had that same dream ten nights in a row. And then the Ritter dream at the rock repeated. I thought I was losing my mind. Oh, I know the feeling. I don't think Shane's inside me all the time. It's as if she walks through a door and I see what she sees and then she leaves. Tucker produced a crooked teeth smile and pointed his index fingers at her. That's right. Not like we're possessed or something. I think Billy and Shane want Ritter and maybe Dimitri Meritokas to be brought to justice. Oh, how, Catherine? I thought I was going to have to use the microfilm machine. I thought I was going to have to use a microfilm machine. She clicked on the newspaper story about Bud Kerrigan. On the screen, the report of Bud's accident slowly moved up page one of the daily edition. There it is. Tucker pulled a chair next to her, and, and she focused on an image on a newspaper headline from September 9, 1958. Real estate broker killed in crash. Owned Pleasant Valley Realty, Manimit, September 7th. Local real estate broker Bud Kerrigan lost control of his 1958 Plymouth 88 near White Beach Drive on Route 3A last night. According to police reports, Kerrigan was traveling south toward his home in the Manomet section of Plymouth when he careened into a row of oak trees at the bottom of a winding slope. Kerrigan was transported to Jordan Hospital where he was declared dead at 9.36 p.m. Police are awaiting laboratory reports. Bud Kerrigan was, was a lifelong resident of the town and formed a real estate business after his return from military service in Europe in World War II. He leaves his wife of 41 years, May, and a brother, Harry Kerrigan of Carson City, Nevada. Funeral, funeral arrangements by the Dole Garrison Funeral Home and Mass at St. Sebastian's Church Chapel in Plymouth are pending an announcement. Catherine ran her fingers over the dusty screen. Tucker, that car's brake line was drained. How do you know this? In one of my dreams, Billy checked the brake line. I didn't have that dream, he said. Where did you see that? A salvage yard west of town. That's what started the chase to the portico. Tucker set his elbow on the table and squinted as he thought. Yeah, I wondered what got Ritter all riled up. Was he at the salvage yard? No, no, he found out about it, but we're talking about something over 40 years ago. Something we can't prove. Catherine looked up and they locked eyes for a moment. You want some dinner tonight, Tucker? I always want dinner, but I always treat a lady to dinner. Good, and I always like to be treated. Maybe between the both of us we can figure this thing out. Chapter 9, Palisades Lounge Miami, Florida, November 22, 1999. Already en route to the Keys, Rizzo fumed about leaving the yacht. Dimitri had landed in Miami and had refused to talk about the crisis. He moved upward in the Hotel Barrymore's glass elevator and shook his head as he stared at the busy lobby. Then he turned to the sweep of hotel lights along the beach below. 
Responding to Dimitri was part of his job, a sacrifice he had made for the power he possessed. As Rita's security chief, the Palisades, the Palisades Lounge, 25 stories up, was a familiar haunt. The elevator slowed and the clear doors opened. He recognized the two doormen in their blue uniforms and patted each of them on the shoulder. The maitre d' in a white tuxedo approached. Mr. Maritokas is waiting for you, Mr. Rizzo. How long has he been in there, Andre? He's been in there for 45 minutes. Oh, shit. Rizzo pressed his lips and followed him into the lower light. A jazz band provided a constant beat under the neon blue rim lights. Dimitri's shaved head and a black sport coat appeared at the table upstairs as Andre motioned Rizzo around the circular booth. Dimitri held a straight whiskey on the rocks in his left hand and sneered at the maitre d'. Mr. Rizzo? Right. May I get you a drink, Mr. Rizzo? I'm all set. Dimitri sucked on a cigarette and, in and exhaled. He spoke without looking at Rizzo. Sit down, Nick. What's this all about? asked Rizzo as he slid around the turquoise leather booth and faced Dimitri. Dimitri snuffed out the cigarette in the glass ashtray. His blue eyes were drained. While you and your entourage girl toy were cruising around the Keys, Alexei discovered more about that woman from Ohio. He called me all the way up here because some woman in Ohio searched for Conrad. Dimitri slammed down the glass, popping out an ice cube and sending the red plastic stirrer onto the glass table. He leaned over and grabbed Rizzo by the collar. You listen to me, Nick. That fucking woman got on a plane and flew to goddamn Boston. Well, I didn't know that. I know you didn't, he said, releasing his grip. She rented a car, and guess where she went? Why would she go to Plymouth? Nobody knows what happened way back. Dimitri shook his head and looked away. After a few seconds of silence, he turned back and spoke through clamped teeth. A man named John Tucker searched for Bud Kerrigan, Shane, and Billy. Tucker is a widower from Phoenix and drives a truck. His wife died in a, a bus accident in California five years ago. Why? Why? Tucker is in Plymouth, you jackass! I didn't know that. Jesus Christ. Dimitri stared at him. Tucker and Jenna both searched for Bud and me from the library in Plymouth. They found out about Bud's accident and about Pleasant Valley. Well, I checked out Jenna. She's a marketing VP, not a journalist or reporter. What you're saying makes no sense. Dimitri shook his head with his mouth open. You're on thin ice, old friend. We're in the big leagues now. Take care of this, Nick. There will be no more searches by Jenna. No more questions about Conrad, Bud, or me. Get rid of them both. Tucker transported the styrofoam food trays across the roadside restaurant a few hundred feet away from the portico. Catherine carried the manila folders stuffed with printouts made at the library. They sat on a slotted bench. He enjoyed playing the dumb country boy, but she sensed a greater intelligence under the facade. He opened the wax paper wrapping surrounding the veggie pocket and handed her a small iced tea. I first knew uh, I had to come back here when I dreamed about Rita chasing Shane and Billy in the Volkswagen. The dream kept repeating until the details were so clear I had to see this area for myself. Catherine sipped the cool tea through a, star <clears throat> through a straw. 
I thought I had lost my marbles until I saw Route 44, the traffic circle down the street and the seawall. Tucker nodded and bit into the pocket, chewing the pita bread as he looked toward the portico. You say in your dream that Shane and Billy saw Bud Kerrigan's car, the Oldsmobile 88, when it was a wreck. At an auto salvage yard over the Carver line, I checked on the map. Carver is the next town over. For all the good it'll do now, they were chased from that junkyard and ended up being killed at the rock by Ritter. Eat some food, Catherine. She bit into the soft pita bread and the fresh vegetables crunched between her teeth. Mmm, this is good. Bud Carrigan had no chance if somebody drained them brake lines. Not everybody knows how to do that. Must have been a mechanic or somebody who knows something about cars. He pressed his thin lips together and leaned on his prop knee. Maritokas? Who the hell was Maritokas? After 40 years, I don't think he would have left a time capsule of evidence incriminating himself. And I'm sure he's the only one in my dreams I saw dispose of the bodies from the boat. Well, there's no doubt he set up Bud Carrigan, said Catherine. The question is, how did he link up with Ritter? And Ritter, 22 years old, buys a radio station at the same time period where Bud was killed? Tucker washed down the food with a tall bottle of Coke. Ritter is a major talent, no matter what you think about him. Maritokas must have seen that. Ritter was his investment. Get Ritter's career going while investing in the station. Catherine watched a few people gawking at Plymouth Rock at the portico down the street. Maritokas brought in... Maritokas bought more media properties as the years went by, and he advanced Ritter's career. Maritokas is the center of this as much as Ritter. He still must be associated with Ritter. But the question, my dear Tucker, is how do we get how do we get justice for Billy and Shane? Tucker held the coke on his thigh and stared across the bay. He adjusted his hat. After all this time, what do we have? I didn't have dreams about that property. You said you dreamed Shane saw that. Capitol Hill. Right, he said, chewing the veggie pocket. Sounds like Maritokas handled the deal. Bud Kerrigan trusted him. Tucker finished the pocket and wiped his mouth with the paper napkin. Car's long gone, but what about the guy at the junkyard? Catherine squinted as she thought. The little guy with the mustache. Could he still be alive? Catherine shrugged her shoulders. He must have been around 35, maybe older. It's possible he's still alive. He'd be at least 80 years old, and I doubt, even if he is alive, that he'd volunteer information with any complicity about the 88. My guess is he drained the lines. Maybe. Tucker stretched his legs and put the Coke bottle in the white bag. I know Maritokas is the guy in the speedboat. I know it. Catherine stared at the rippling blue waters beyond the portico. Those bodies must be still down there. He peered back into the bay. After 40 years. You have a wife, Tucker. I see the ring. Well, I never took it off. Divorce? Don't want to talk about it. I'm sorry. Don't be. All the good things, Catherine. They shoot across the sky like bright stars, and you remember them good times. Tucker maintained his faraway look. Maritokas, or whoever was in that boat, pushed Billy's body into the water. Wasn't that far out in the bay, but he attached weights to the body. Billy moved down quickly. I kept waking up when he hit bottom, but I just don't think it was more than a couple hundred yards out. He pointed to the distant spit. I kept seeing the blinking lights on that vacant land in the harbor. Catherine stood and held his wrist again. Tucker, 
So they find the remains. Okay, we can't just come forward and accuse Ritter or even Meritokas. There are no witnesses, no evidence, no way to convict them of anything. With his arms locked around his ribs, he stared into the bay and shook his head. And I don't foresee us finding the spilled brake fluid either. So what do we do? <clears throat> he deposited the contents of the lunch in the metal trash barrel. The only real thing we have is the purchase of the radio station by Ritter. Everything else is long gone. And that guy at the yard, she said, no, no, wait a minute. What if someone else suspected what we suspect? Did Bud ever tell anyone else what he told Shane outside the office? Maybe this guy, Dan Jansen, that police sergeant. She looked into his dark brown eyes. Forty years is a long time, Tucker. As Tucker drove the van up the road, Catherine alerted him to the large shopping plaza beyond the highway bridge. In my dreams, that plaza was just woods. This road used to be Route 44, and it was rural and narrow. I ain't surprised. You know, I don't think it's smart we tell anybody about people skipping in and out of our heads. Agreed. Roz knows. Roz? Roommate. Roz moved in when my fiancé left. Roz, uh, sounds like you're a roommate. Tucker's brow furrowed. Sorry about your fiancé. Well, it's for the better. His large hands encircled the wheel, and then he checked the side mirror. Anyone else know about your dreams? Nah. Tucker brought the van up along the long hill toward the water tower, now painted green. The road widened into several lanes. See, the way I look at it, neither one of us can prove nothing for nothing. Catherine grinned. You have a way with words, Tucker. Well, can you prove it? Nope. She studied his angled profile as he drove into an expanded five-corner intersection near a new fire station. A huge microwave tower with assorted dishes and linear antennas popped up behind the station. Stay straight, Tucker. This road has really changed. Tucker again checked the mirror and sped into a single lane. Wonder if we can really shake up Ritter or con him into thinking we have the goods on him. We might want to try that. A big risk. He is Conrad Ritter, and who are we? Right. The power line stretched over the branches ahead. Newer and higher concrete poles supported the thicker and numerous lines above the remnants of the farm. The gray-weathered silo had nearly collapsed, and the, and the farm acreage reduced to a few fields. I like the simpler time before everything was paved over and homogenized. Businesses with individual owners... More responsibility if you own your own place. Oh, who the hell has responsibility nowadays? Asked Tucker as the van crossed directly under the high-tension wires. You go to the doctor, you don't pay him. You don't even decide where you go. Some bureaucrat tells you what's covered and what isn't. Life has become too damn complicated. I wonder what it was like 40 years ago. Were things that different? Right. When Ritter started his career, I was just thinking... Meritokas's name must be on the old real estate transactions somewhere. In my dream, Bud made it sound real fishy. Catherine pointed to the housing track roads to her left. Look, Tucker, someone developed this area. It made sense at the time for Bud Kerrigan to invest in this area. Somebody made money, probably Dimitri Meritokas. Bud didn't live to talk about it. Exactly. The road narrowed near a small brick apartment complex in velvet cranberry bogs nestled within the sandy flats to the rear. A couple of hundred yards ahead, the town line marker rose from the tall grass. A 
Across the highway, a handwritten black and gold sign hung from a pressure-treated pole. Tucker slowed the van. Pine Hill Estates? Asphalt. Kids playhouses and swimming pools. She figured the office salvage shack used to be behind the first bend on Pine Hill Drive. I don't think we'll be seeing any Oldsmobile 88s up there. Pine Hill Drive swept within the view of the high-tension wires. Newer concrete foundations were poured into freshly scooped sand along the hill. A number of pickup trucks and an oversized yellow en- oversized yellow front end loader were parked in front of a white construction trailer plopped at the bend. A few of the old pine trees remained on the hill. Tucker looked at Catherine and stopped across from the construction trailer. Good place to get information. Maybe. She stepped into the cooler air and accompanied Tucker across the frozen boot prints in the dirt and up to the trailer's corrugated metal steps. He opened the door. A few men in construction boots sat around a large man with a loud voice. The heater hummed as they stepped inside and Tucker closed the door. The guy in the red flannel shirt and big belly looked up. Who the hell are you? Oh, who the hell are you? asked Tucker. I asked first. You want to buy a house for the missus? The man struggled to extricate his huge frame out of the captain's chair. He thrust out his chubby hand. Frank DeMarco. Tucker, and I understand there used to be a car graveyard back here. DeMarco stroked his chin. Who the hell told you that? Don't go spreading rumors about my development. I ain't. We want to know what happened to the junkyard, said Catherine. Oh, time for the school bus to go by, Bobby. Oh, hell, they hauled the last car out of here 25 years ago. I got it all on my permit from the state. Who are you guys, the feds? We're looking for the guy who used to run the yard. Oh, old Sid? Little guy with a mustache, said Catherine. Yeah, the old geezer. Yeah, yeah. Sid ran that place for years. He was here when we cleared the land. He used to sit in a lawn chair. Hell, I got Sid the sun umbrella. Is he still alive? asked Catherine. Oh, he's alive, buddy. Don't say much. Had a stroke a couple years ago. I've been meaning to go into town and see Sid. Catherine tried to picture Sid as an old man. Can he communicate at all? He ain't never said nothing to me for a few years. You ever know Conrad Ritter? What? DeMarco looked out the trailer window. Ritter, the guy on TV? I watch him all the time. How the hell would Sid, how the hell would Sid know Ritter? <clears throat> well, Ritter was born in Plymouth. Oh, no shit. Where is Sid now? asked Tucker. The nursing home in town of Peaceful Lakers. Tucker smiled and shook his hand again. Thanks for the info. Uh, nice houses. Remember, Frank DeMarco. Are you sure you don't want to buy one? Tucker smiled and shook his hand again. Just passing uh, through, Frank, old buddy. Tucker reached for the door and held the knob, but he turned around. But then he turned around. You ever hear of Bud Kerrigan? DeMarco nearly lost his balance as he sat down. Kerrigan? I don't know no Kerrigan. Hell, I'd come down here from the North Shore. He lowered his body and back into the chair. But if I see him, I'll tell him you were asking for him. Yeah, you do that, said Tucker. Tucker helped Catherine down the stairs and shut the metal door. In the sunshine, she faced his intense blue eyes. We need to find Sid. 
It's worth a try, Tucker, old buddy. Chapter 10 The afternoon talk show blasted down the corridor near Sid's room. The nursing staff said he had lost his ability to speak, but he constantly watched TV. Catherine hesitated outside the room, glanced at Tucker, and then stuck her head inside the doorway. A man with white scraggly hair, rimmed around his bald head, slouched in a chrome-frame wheelchair, perched before a small TV. She shuffled into the peach-colored room and cautiously rounded the wheelchair. Sid's black frame glasses, lenses smudged and magnifying his dark eyes, were balanced snugly on his straight nose. His right arm, tattooed with a faded representation of a mermaid and the tall ship, hung in a gray sling. His left thumb pressed against the remote button as he flipped the channels. She recognized him within the withered, pale, wrinkled representation of the cocky little man in the junkyard 40 years ago. His midnight eyes blinked and rolled to the left to focus on her. The right side of his face drooped. Sid, my name is Catherine Jenner. This is my friend Tucker. Sid's flattened pink smile curved up the left side of his face. Someone had missed shaving a crop of stray beard stubble. We want to ask you a few questions. He raised his thumb above the remote and, moist, and the moisture level in his eyes peaked. Tucker squatted next to the chair. Sid, we want to talk about something from a long time ago. Sid again raised his thumb and pushed the remote to an afternoon soap opera as Catherine leaned over. Did you know Bud Carrigan? He spun the channels like an out-of-control motor. Tucker creased his brow. He died in a car accident 40 years ago. Sid lifted his thumb from the remote and the tiny TV sizzled with gray and white snow. Catherine knelt next to the padded wheelchair's sidearm. Sid shook his head at the fluctuating signal. Tears rolled over his frozen face. Catherine's throat tightened as she visualized him as a younger man. We don't think Bud died by accident. We think somebody drained the brake fluid from his car. Bud was scammed for big bucks, said Tucker. Sid fiddled with more buttons on the remote, and amidst the blue screen, a series of blue-leaded programming instructions appeared. He clicked the timer button slowly and plugged in the settings. Program mode. September 7, 1958. Start, 10 p.m. Stop, 10.07 p.m. Channel 3A. Speed, SP. Oh, dear God! That's the date that Bud was killed! Did you know who did it? asked Catherine. Sid's, Sid's eyes floated in his tears. He clicked the remote. I'm sorry, Sid. I don't mean to frustrate you. Tucker stood, grasped Catherine's hand to help her up. She glanced at the blue-leaded program. Sid's eyelids drooped and he sunk into a light sleep. Tucker motioned Catherine out of the room. He knows, Tucker. He knows, she said in the hall. He put the date on the screen. I have to ask him about Shane and Billy. She re-entered the room. Sid again scanned the channels. Sid, did you know Shane Kerrigan and Billy Ellis? He stopped the channel surfing and maneuvered his thumb across the buttons and configured the timer on the screen again, but he changed the top sequence. Program mode, September 13, 1958. Start, 10 p.m. Stop, 11 p.m. Channel. Speed, extended play. Sid popped his thumb with a twisted smile as he fought to keep his eyelids open. 
like a battery recharging, he weighed the remote at the TV and finally closed his eyes. Catherine put her hand on his shoulder. More tears leaked out of his closed eyes. Sid, we're staying in the area. We'll come back. Tucker held her shoulders and walked her into the corridors, but peeked back in the room before they left. Isn't that the date they disappeared? He knows more, but he can't get it out. Tucker nudged the van along a constricted hill in the constricted hilly section of Route 3A as Catherine scanned the trees for a remnant of Bud Kerrigan's accident. Tucker slowed where the, Tucker slowed where the hill curved. A long galvanized rail now shield, shielded wayward drivers from the wide tree trunks lurking down a rocky gully. If we talk to Sid again, we need to ask him specific questions. Try and reconstruct us. Try and reconstruct this. There it is. Sure, now they have a rail there. Tucker pulled onto the Bluestone Highway shoulder beyond the breakdown lane. He checked the map and pointed at the road off the highway. Now there's a nuclear power plant down the road. Catherine tried to envision Bud pumping the brakes and losing control as he gained speed down the steep hill. She wondered about his last thoughts as he careened toward the trees. I'm sure they drained the fluid in the restaurant parking lot. The cops might have investigated the accident, but they must have assumed that booze caused the accident. Tucker looked up from the map. Somebody planned it real good. Catherine smiled. Except it's all airtight now. Probably was even back then. People from the restaurant must be long dead. The ritter Maritokas connection is the only link, he said, looking over his shoulders as the tires caught the asphalt and he started up the opposite hill. The road continued to wind upward through the woods but leveled out a short time later. Tucker checked the map and signaled at the huge new mobile station at the corner. Across the street, a number of cars waited to leave the shopping plaza. He turned left. According to the phone book at the library, Bud lived at 57 Cushman Street. Beyond a small, grassy cemetery's weathered white marble stones, several poorly paved streets jutted toward the ocean. Tucker signaled at Cushman's faded black-and-white street sign. Catherine spotted an aluminum mailbox with a twisted flag and the name Mendez. Body grass front lawn bordered a mildewed cement wall and front walk. Thin plastic sheets covered the outside porch windows and two rusted compacts sat in the rutted driveway. Dented pale siding covered the house and the unattached garage. So they drained the brake fluid, knowing Bud has to drive down the Route 3A roller coaster. Tucker looked at the odometer. Four and a half miles, enough time to lose control of your vehicle. You think old Sid did it? asked Catherine. I think old Sid was paid to get rid of the 88, and later he found out about what happened. I'm leaning toward Maritokas, because nothing ever leaked out other than brake fluid. Right, adding others would mean the chances of something getting out, no matter how much you paid them. Or maybe Ritter himself. Catherine yawned. Excuse me, you bored? No, bored I'm not. We should get back to the hotel. She checked her watch. It's 3.30. What do you say we take a little trip to WXBN and then maybe you can get me something to eat? Tucker grinned. Oh, yeah? I can get you something to eat? Should I buzz the hotel and have them run a bath for you, too? Oh, thank you, she said, smiling as she hit his arms. Ha, ha. 
She studied the worn slate roof on Bud Kerrigan's old house and tried to assemble a composite of how the house appeared with the cement new and the lawn full and green. Somehow she would find justice for Bud Kerrigan, too. According to the crinkled map, Tucker claimed he could see across the Silver Sheen Bay to a vague tower in the haze at the tip of Cape Cod. Catherine gazed upward toward the red and white metal grid antenna, reaching toward the puffy pink clouds above the evergreens. Then she dragged Tucker over to the yellow Studebaker. Tucker looked inside the convertible and then down at the plaque, donated by Conrad Ritter. It's the car that was parked next to the portico where Shane and Billy were killed. A witness, Tucker. Possible witnesses. Tucker nodded and they crossed the lot. He opened the brick building's aluminum and glass door. They stepped into the warmer air and into a glossy tiled lobby with tall fluffy plants along the white plastered wall. A huge mural-sized current photograph of a smiling Conrad Ritter in a dark sport coat and white turtleneck covered the wall. Oh, dear God, said Catherine as her stomach tightened. Tucker continued to look up at the image. That guy is everywhere. An elderly receptionist with marble blue eyes wore a headset and a hands-free microphone as she answered phone calls behind a sliding glass window. Catherine moved with Tucker through a small waiting area with black vinyl chairs and a glass coffee table strewn with radio and music magazines. The window opened. May I help you? Yes, said Tucker, looking back toward the mural. Conrad Ritter. He spoke quickly with a sense of urgency. John Tucker, I'm a freelance writer. Catherine raised her brow and tried not to grin at his antics. Doing a piece on Conrad Ritter. Reader Potts, I knew Conrad very well. She raised her index finger and answered the phone. WXBN, yes, I'll connect you. She looked up again. What do you want to know? People come by here all the time. What kind of an individual was he? asked Tucker. He was just wonderful. We all loved Conrad. Really? said Tucker. He uh, bought the station, said Catherine, edging forward. Oh, that was a long time ago. He was only here a few years, but they were glorious years, let me tell you. Tucker glanced at Catherine. You ever come back? Oh, sure. Rita had a deep longing in her eyes. Off and on, but I followed his career, collected the newspaper articles. Can I have a copy of your article when you finish? Huh? Oh, yeah, sure. I suppose you want to talk to the station manager. Of course, said Tucker. Writing involves talking to people. She pushed a button on the switchboard. Mr. Hendrickson. Don't overdo it, Tucker, whispered Catherine. We need to link Ritter and Maritokas to the money for the station purchase. Mr. Henderson, someone is out here doing another article on Conrad. Yes, I will, she looked up. He'll be right out. Do you know anybody named Maritokas? Oh, sure, Dimitri was the real estate guy and lawyer. Originally from New Jersey, partner with uh, Bud Kerrigan. He took over the company after Bud died. Did he help Conrad along the way? asked Tucker. Oh, he became Conrad's manager. Spotted his talent for sure. Tucker looked at the mural. Dimitri Meritokas. Rita, you've been very helpful. Well, Conrad and I, we, <laughs> we used to date. Really? asked Catherine. 
He was always frisky. <laughs> Still is. I never miss his show. What else do you know about Maritokas? Asked Tucker, leaning inside the window. Well, he did all the talking, you know, as far as business. Catherine nodded. Okay. Let me ask you this, and I know it's a long time ago. Did Bud die before Dimitri arrived? Oh, Dimitri was here when Bud died. Yes, yes. Catherine nodded. Okay. But I do know that Mr. Maritokas provided the monetary security when Conrad, when Conrad bought the station. A tall, peppered-haired man in white chinos and an unbuttoned blue Oxford shirt stepped out the side door. Mr. Tucker, I'm David Hendrickson. I manage WXBN. John Tucker, this is my assistant, Catherine Jenner. Miss Jenner, she, he said as he shook Tucker's hand. Well, tonight's the big night for Conrad. All signs point to him running for governor of Florida, and who knows where he'll go after that. Well, I'm looking at the early years. I understand he bought this station in 1958. Whoa, we have some pictures right over here. He motioned them through the waiting room to a slanted ceiling corridor with overhead track lighting. Of course, he was a lot younger then. Catherine's eyes tiptoed along the dozens of black-and-white framed photos, a line like an art gallery. Hendrickson pointed to a large silver-framed black-and-white photo of a beaming, youthful Conrad Ritter, dressed in a white shirt and thin tie. He had cropped sandy hair. Catherine stared at Ritter's deep-rutted eyes and visualized him chasing Shane and Billy into the portico. The photograph, at a restaurant table, probably taken within weeks of the shootings, could have been the same photo on, on Bud Kerrigan's office wall in her dream. The white-haired man is Harris Goodwin, the original owner of WXBN. I guess Goodwin was ready to move to Florida. His wife is to the left. I believe the rather chunky man was the station accountant. This was at the old wayside on Route 3A. They tore it down in the 60s, according to the natives. Oh, you weren't born in Plymouth? asked Catherine. Oh, I hail from Springfield. Tucker pressed his finger on a small man with slick black hair and a, and a lip smile. That man. Oh, Dimitri Maritokas. You've probably seen him in the news. He's the man behind the voice. Of course, he has no hair now. Tucker winced as he looked into Catherine's eyes. Then he whispered, He's the guy on the boat. What? He's the guy on the boat, Catherine. Now, we have a number of early pictures of Conrad Ritter. He only owned the station for two years. Somehow he managed to broadcast from Los Angeles when the Democrats nominated Jack Kennedy. His radio career took off then, and the rest, as they say, is history. Catherine scanned the other pictures for Dimitri Maritokas. He paid uh, cash for the station? asked Tucker. Oh, I, I don't know. Ritter was a local boy who made good after graduating from Princeton. I guess he saved some money and must have taken out a loan. Not bad for a 21-year-old. A good investment, wouldn't you say? Dan Jansen would know more about those days. Is Jansen still alive? asked Catherine. Well, he used to be on the police force, a sergeant. You know him? Yes. I. Uh, where is he now? Seaview Village. You know, the retirement home. Town owns it. On Summer Street. Really? asked Catherine. Any records on that original transaction for the station? asked Tucker. Hey, you're not one of those tabloid guys, are you? Because I don't go for that kind of journalism. No, 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 I'm not. Well, it doesn't matter. The station has changed hands a dozen times since Ritter owned it. 
I never came across the original stuff. I'm sure it's long gone. Might want to check the town hall or the county records. Just like everything else, said Tucker. I'm at the bay in on the water. Any other information you might have about Conrad Ritter, I'd be glad to put it in my article. Well, I'll make a note of it, said Hendrickson. He escorted them back and pulled a self-adhesive note off his desk. Very good, Mr. Tucker. Nice to meet you, Miss Jenner. Thank you for your help, said Catherine. Hendrickson retreated down the corridor, but Tucker headed back to the receptionist. He waited as the elderly platinum blonde finished up on the phone. Reader, I have a question. Sure. There's a photo in the corridor. Conrad Ritter is sitting around a table. With Mr. Goodwin. Who's the dark-haired, stocky man with the crew cut? Asked Tucker. Oh, that's Nick. Nick Rizzo probably rented the suit. He usually wore an undershirt. That yellow car out front. A gift from Conrad, she said with a goofy smile. Do you always own his own car? She shook her head. I don't even remember him driving it. He donated it years after he left Plymouth. I see. Well, thank you. The switchboard sounded and Rita pushed a button. WXBN. Thank you, Rita. Tucker put his arm on Catherine's back and steered her toward the outside door. They walked slowly to the asphalt parking lot. The large expanse of blue ocean unfolded as they rounded the building. Mysterious people around Mr. Ritter are mysterious no more. What about that car? How did Ritter get that car? It has to be connected. They headed back to the van parked under the trees across the lot. We need to contact Dan Jansen. Or go back to 1958. Dream on. Tucker opened the van door for her. I just hope Jansen is in better shape than Sid Horowitz. Maritokas accelerated and the sports car gained speed down the freeway. The skies had cleared and the traffic thinned out. His cell rang and he picked it up off the console. Maritokas. Dimitri, it's Alexei. Yes, Alexei. I am in Ohio watching Jenna's friend Rosalind Paganani. Well, what the hell does she know? Not sure. I'm trailing her. But I heard from back east my contact at radio station tells me that the woman and the cowboy have been seen at WXBN within the last hour. I'm going to make call and take care of Sid Horowitz. Maritoka sat up as he sped along. Did Nick Rizzo say he was going to kill Sid? When he did not reply, Maritokas continued. Nick Rizzo is landing in Boston as we speak. He'll find Tucker and the girl. Nothing happens without orders from me. I want to know how they found out any of this. Then we kill them. What about Dan Jensen? He is a liability. Danny doesn't know anything, or at least any of the pertinent details. Keep a tail on that Paganini woman and, and report back to me in 24 hours. Dimitri slammed down the phone on the seat and punched in Nick Rizzo's number. The line rang and he exhaled as he drove. When Nick Rizzo's message started, Dimitri crunched his teeth. Nick, you're a son of a bitch. Before driving to see Jansen in the retirement home, Tucker brought the van under the highway bridge on Route 44. He signaled along a rusted chain-link fence and slowed at the iron gates to Oak Ridge Cemetery. He navigated through the cemetery's narrow paths, along rows of slate-weathered stones with worn names and inscriptions. He stopped the van at the top of the hill and got out. 
one of the kids raking the leaves, walked over to the van and directed Tucker to a shed near a highway fence. Tucker turned to Catherine. He says the groundskeeper might know where Bud is buried. He got inside and started the van again. They moved upward toward a light metal-sided building away from the highway. I still can't believe we've both been drawn back here. Well, I'm kind of losing track of that myself, he said, pulling up to the next shed. A tall guy with curly steel hair and an orange sweatshirt worked on an inverted snowblower. Excuse me, I'm looking for a grave. The man lit a cigarette and quickly exhaled. Who you looking for? Bud Carrigan. Oh, yeah, I, I know the grave. Then he is buried here, said Catherine. Yeah, he said, pointing the cigarette toward the adjacent tree-lined hill. See those maples up top? Catherine nodded and peered through the windshield at the bare maples. He died in 1958. September 7th, 1958. Charles Arnold. I've been in this cemetery for 20 years, ma'am. Well, thanks for your help, said Tucker, briefly squeezing his hand. What about Shane Carrigan or William Ellis? I don't know them. Ain't buried here. Thank you. Catherine watched him return to the shed. He hurled the cigarette across the asphalt as they ascended up the road. With a slight rise, Tucker pointed to a gray granite stone's chiseled letters. Carrigan, Charles Arnold Carrigan, June 27, 1902, September 7, 1958. May Elizabeth Carrigan, June 29, 1908, December 13, 1962. Catherine pushed her lips together as she moved with trepidation toward the stone. I can't explain this. Uh, who the hell would believe it? asked Tucker. Maybe Jansen. Jansen was going to the DA once they had something, said Catherine. She knelt on the ground and with her fingers outlined the chiseled granite representation of Bud's name and the dates of his birth and death. I wonder what Jansen really thinks happened to them, asked Tucker. Catherine held his wrist. If he's in the same shape as Sid, we've got problems. Tucker's face tightened and he panned the graveyard. I want to know why he didn't nail Ritter. Poor Bud. Taken in and then killed by Meritokas, said Tucker. I'd like to know Dmitri Meritokas's background, she said. I tell you, he was the guy in the boat, the guy who dumped the bodies. And there was a yellow Studebaker parked near the portico. Something is very odd about that. She shook her head and pushed back her hair in the winter sun. An image of Sakalatiter in a long sea-green waistcoat wandered along the hill. Oh, dear God! What is it? She ran forward as he called, but the image disappeared into the woods. Tucker caught up to her. Did you see that? It was him. Who? Who was it? Sakalatita. Your Indian doctor? She pinched the bridge of her nose. I'm cracking up. <laughs> Sometimes I wish I had never had these dreams. Why me? Well, I've asked myself the same thing. I'm just stressed. No, no. There has to be a reason, Catherine, for what you just saw and for the dreams. We live in opposite areas of the country, but somehow these two people got inside our heads. What we saw was their reality, and I feel an obligation more than anything else I've ever felt in my life. I have to find the truth here. Catherine nodded and gazed back at Bud Stone. You're right. He was murdered, and so were Billy and Shane. Tucker stopped in front of a long plaza. Behind the plaza, a supermarket extended up the hill. He checked the map and then turned to Catherine. 
According to this, if we just go around back, we can take Summer Street to Seaview Village. Let's find Dan Jansen. Tucker pulled through the plaza and around the supermarket. He rolled through the stop sign and onto Summer Street. She glanced back to the supermarket's concrete blocks in the plaza below. This would have been Capitol Hill. Streets and houses. That's what Bud Kerrigan thought. Ruthless. These people were utterly ruthless. Tucker smiled from one side of his mouth. They think the swindle was buried just like Bud Kerrigan. He slowed at a series of gray-sided townhouses with a smattering of pine trees. The slightly larger main office had sliders facing the parking lot. Jansen has lived with this knowledge, said Catherine as they exited the van and Tucker power-locked the doors. They moved up the cement handicap ramp. Maybe he finally just gave up. Maybe. He opened the office door and a large black lady in a blue dress smiled. May I help you? Catherine stepped forward. We're looking for Dan Jansen. A captivating smile filled her wide face. Oh, Danny is up with the morning group, the dancing group. I don't know whether he's teaching it or just showing off. Oh, great. Then he is here, said Catherine. Oh, Danny is almost 85. He's been here since he retired from the police department. He's outlived everybody because he loves life. Would it be possible to speak with him this morning? asked Tucker. Well, be my guest. Danny will talk to just about anybody. She spun her chair around and pointed to a large white door next to a stone fireplace. Our recreation room is right through that door. We just go right in? Go right ahead. Tucker smiled. Thank you so much, ma'am. He escorted Catherine toward the door. Music and people laughing filtered outside. Tucker opened the door. A white-haired man in a bright green blazer and yellow pants glided across the parquet floor. When the big band tune ended, he raised his part and his hand upward. Then they all clapped. The white-haired man patted his forehead with a blue handkerchief and talked to several younger women as he drifted toward the snack table. He had a crisp New England accent, notoriously neglecting his R's. Catherine recognized Dan Jansen's voice. He had a laugh that sounded like a machine gun as it trailed off. At my age, I don't worry about cholesterol, heart attacks, or cancer. I eat what I want, I do what I want, and I don't know when to shut up. The woman around Jansen giggled like girls parading after a school dance. But Danny, we have to watch our figures. No, I have to watch your figure. Excuse me, uh, Sergeant Jansen, said Tucker in a clear voice. Jansen, around six feet tall, with eyes darker than Tucker's brown eyes, turned quickly. Son, I haven't been called Sergeant since my daughter Marjorie got married and Jimmy Carter was president. Do I know you? No. Call me Dan, he shook Tucker's hand and gazed over at Catherine. And what can I do for you, beautiful young lady? I'm Catherine Jenner, she said with a grin. You wear your age well, Mr. Jansen, said Tucker. Well, I thank you. Years of tripping the life fantastic. Mr. Jansen, said Catherine, we've come into some information. Oh, yeah? He asked as the music shook the CD player again, and he watched the younger woman. Did I win the lottery, or am I inheriting money from a long-lost cousin? Tucker cleared his throat. Does the uh, Project Capitol Hill ring a bell? Immediately, Jansen's face flushed, and for the first time, he seemed at a loss for words. And Bud Kerrigan's death? asked Catherine. 
I have to dance, my friends. Tucker grabbed his arm. We know the story, Dan. Then why do you want to talk to me? We need you to fill in the details. What about Dimitri Maritokas? Jansen again dabbed the sweaty beads off his forehead. Listen, I don't know anything. Tucker folded his arms. Bud died in a car accident after losing everything in a land deal. Jansen pursed his lips, patted his forehead again, and shook his head. Well, that's public record. I didn't know Bud Kerrigan personally or anything about this Capitol Hill thing. Good luck to you both. He looked at them one more time and then headed back to another group of women across the room. Then he danced across the hall. He knows, Tucker. He knows. I know he knows. But why won't he talk about it? The woman from behind the desk walked through the doorway. She smiled and moved closer. Oh, you found Mr. Jansen. We did, said Tucker. He wrote the hotel name on the back of a piece of scrap paper and handed it to her. I guess Mr. Jansen is busy. Can you just let him know we're staying at the Bay Inn? Sure, good old Danny is always after the ladies. Thank you, said Catherine as they headed into the corridor. He knows, he knows. Tucker stared at Jansen several times. Jansen glanced at them but continued speaking with the women as he danced. He had lost his jovial demeanor. That man has a lot of information, Catherine, and I don't know why he won't share it, but he may be the key to unraveling all of this. Catherine gazed at the bright TV monitor behind the bar. The national and international news seem unimportant. I've searched for an hour on the computer, Tucker. There's nothing sinister on Dimitri Meritokas. He works for Conrad Ritter as his manager. That makes no sense. Tucker removed the fork from his mouth and chewed the chicken. Then he gestured with the fork. Sid can't speak. Jansen is different. He doesn't want things to get out. You've seen him. He's still in great shape, even at 85. Forty years hasn't hurt him, said Catherine, checking the monitor. I don't think anybody paid him off. Maybe he's at an age where he thinks it's useless. He simply knows when to keep his mouth shut. Catherine nodded and nibbled on her fried clams. The report on the TV switched to Conrad Ritter. The gray-haired Ritter and Clips interviewed the president. She hit Tucker's wrist. Oh, here we go. Look, Tucker, look. Yeah, there he is, and it all started right here on the hill at XBN. He went right to the top, all right. Ritter was filmed earlier in the day, walking into the tall, green glass office building in Orlando, housing his studio. He led an entourage into the building lobby. Someone turned up the TV volume and the announcer's voice echoed around the bar. Ritter had no comment about reports he will resign his position on the Conrad Ritter show this evening and announce his candidacy for the governorship of Florida. Ritter moved with the others into an olive-colored elevator. Listen tonight on the show. Current's Ruggle polling service gives Conrad Ritter a 22-point spread over his nearest challenger, Governor Joe McLaughlin, in that race. Pundits have speculated Ritter may be using the governor's position as a stepping stone into national politics, possibly the presidency, in four or eight years. For now, we'll have to wait for the announcement that's almost guaranteed to come this evening on the Conrad Ritter Show. This is John Burlingame reporting on CN News. The anchor leaned his shoulder and looked into the camera. Maybe Conrad needs a replacement. I'm available, he said to the woman next to him. She grinned as he glanced at her. I guess stranger things have happened. 
He's got that right, said Catherine. Tucker sipped his coffee and savored the flavor. You know, I don't want to come out with anything unless we have exact proof. Without it, they'll bury us. I'm just a woman from Ellaby, Ohio. I go to my job every day, and I can't say I'm looking forward to the national press swarming all over us because we've implicated Conrad Ritter in murders from 40 years ago. We have to funnel whatever we have to someone who can do something with it, an attorney or a DA. Or his enemies in the governor's race, said Catherine with a grin. That would fix his wagon. You know, despite what I just said, I think of poor old Bud Kerrigan up in the cemetery. He never got to live out his life, and neither did Billy and Shane. That's what really angers me about Ritter's success. Tucker leaned back. He studied her face and nodded. Need to find more on Meritokus. Maybe. I bet the trail ends at Capitol Hill. How do you exist in two time periods at once without losing your mind? It's almost like having multiple personalities. That's not the case for Catherine. What becomes increasingly clear to Catherine when she finds Bud Kerrigan's and Dimitri Meritokas's card back in Plymouth is that her dreams are reality. Then she meets a trucker from out west, Tucker, the stabilizing influence. And old Tucker is having the same dreams. Then we flip to Conrad Ritter and Dimitri Meritokas of the present day. They are becoming aware through their investigators that someone is checking Ritter's past. They combine forces into a present-day investigation of the murders that took place decades before. Yet, in order to find the truth, they may have to go back to where it began. Next week, with Dimitri and Conrad Ritter and the investigators finding out what's going on in Plymouth, Roz arrives and also Dr. Sakalatia is lurking in a wavering image in Plymouth. Very interesting. I'm Robert P. Fitton. Thank you for listening, and I'll be back next week. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com, or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.